I'm going to tell you a story. It's going to sound a little crazy, but it's true. I went to a large public high school with about 2,000 students. My freshman year, I took a guitar class. The class was taught, and I use that term loosely, by the high school band director who I'll call Mr. Abrams. Mr. Abrams was a decorated tuba player, and he became a teacher to conduct marching bands and symphonic bands, not to teach a bunch of wannabe teenage rock stars the chords to Wonderwall. His disdain for our class was apparent. Most days, he spoke for a few minutes at the beginning of the period, then retired to his office where he worked on things for his other ensembles and lazily kept an eye on the guitar students through a large window. Now, if you've never been in a large public high school band room, let me paint a picture. They're cathedrals, and ours was especially large. The main room was thousands of square feet with 20 or 25 foot ceilings. Branching off from the main room were about a dozen other rooms, including practice rooms, locker rooms, bathrooms, and storage areas. It was huge. The massive space, combined with Mr. Abrams' lack of oversight, created a pretty rowdy classroom environment. One day in September or October, a student who I'll call Marcus came in with a backpack full of beer. Marcus had just turned 20. He was in his second or third year as a senior. A few weeks prior to bringing in the beer, Marcus had invited me and a few of my other freshman friends to his house, telling us he could get ecstasy liquor and pills if we wanted. We didn't accept the invite, but as a 14-year-old, it left an impression on me. Anyway. After Mr. Abrams locks himself away in his office, Marcus unzips his backpack and shows a few students his beer stash. Marcus looks around and calls my good friend Joe over. Joe is a big dude, probably 6'3", 260 as a freshman. Went on to become a bit of a football star as an upperclassman. And Marcus instructs Joe to sit between him and Mr. Abrams' office window. Why Marcus didn't go to one of the practice rooms or to the bathroom still confuses me. Maybe he wanted the rush of doing it in the open. Regardless, using Joe as a shield, Marcus shotguns several beers in just a few minutes. Once Marcus is good and drunk, he starts messing around with all kinds of stuff. At one point, he and a friend are tossing a butterfly knife back and forth, trying to catch it by the handle as the blade spins every which way. Later, Marcus chews a few pieces of juicy fruit and spits the gum into the bells of some of the sousaphones sitting against the back wall. After a few other shenanigans, to the surprise of everyone, Marcus sits down and starts practicing the guitar. But in his drunken state, he plays too hard and snaps a string. Marcus breaking a string is a record scratch moment, because Abrams usually gets upset when a student breaks a string. Marcus will have to switch guitars with somebody, or go to Abrams and get the string replaced, or wait and try and sneak it past Abrams at the end of class when we return the guitars, which incidentally is when Abrams is the most attentive because he keeps track of his equipment like a hawk. And of course, the stakes are raised on all of these options because Marcus is hammered. Marcus bravely, or drunkenly, decides to march right into Abrams' office and get the string replaced. Before he gets up, he growls, if Abrams gives me any attitude, I'll punch him right in the face. When he said this, I believed him. And so did everybody else. So when Marcus knocks on the office door, you could hear a pin drop in the main room. Every student has stopped playing and is staring straight into the office window. We can't hear Marcus and Mr. Abrams through the glass, but we invent a hundred different versions of the conversation as we watch their mouths move. I can safely assume the majority of the class was hoping Mr. Abrams was going to get punched in the face, either for the sheer chaos of it or because Abrams was a genuinely dislikable man who took every opportunity to be condescending. However, the conversation occurs without incident. Abrams replaces the string without noticing that Marcus is drunk, and when Marcus returns to his seat, he says to his entranced audience, he was nice about it. A few periods later, in a class that I'm not in, a teacher discovers that Marcus is drunk. Marcus gets belligerent. The school resource officer is called. Marcus tries to stab the officer with a pen and gets arrested. I never see him again. 
So, what happened to Mr. Abrams? Was it ever discovered that Marcus's drinking started in his class? Nope. Did some other negligent incident happen later in Abrams' career that made it apparent his apathy towards certain classes led to dangerous environments? No. What happened was Abrams went back to school, got an advanced degree, was promoted to the position of fine arts coordinator for a neighboring school district. Then, after a few years of doing that, he moved back into the classroom and is currently the band director at a high school about 20 miles from the one where I graduated. I'm not telling you this story to smear Mr. Abrams or even to definitively say he's a bad teacher. I can confidently say he was a bad guitar teacher, and I can say he inspired nothing in me despite the fact that I was an incredibly dedicated music student when I knew him. But to be fair, some of his band kids loved him. I remember a good number of students sobbing hysterically when he decided to leave during my junior year. And as I wrote this introduction, some 11 years after the fact, I checked in on Mr. Abrams' website. He has a heartfelt blog post about the death of George Floyd and expresses a desire for music teachers to examine their curriculums for racial bias. He's also a participating member of five different music education associations. His Twitter timeline contains tweets urging Arizona Governor Doug Ducey to keep schools closed to avoid the spread of COVID-19. He seems perfect over the internet. Now here's the thing. Mr. Abrams, which again is not his real name, is not the only music teacher in this story. I also ended up becoming a music teacher. As a teacher, I think about this story with Marcus all the time. I'm also acutely aware that on paper, Mr. Abrams exemplifies all things good about music education. But having been a student in Mr. Abrams' class, I can't accept that. I, I just, oh, I really can't. And I think my experience in Mr. Abrams' guitar class is indicative of a big problem in our music education system. I made this podcast because I really wanted to identify and explain that problem in detail. My name is Jacob Unterreiner, and this podcast is a case for more socially responsive music education. There's a lot of evidence our current school music programs have some pretty fundamental flaws. The majority of band and orchestra students stop playing after graduation. The number of choir students who continue singing after high school is a bit better, but still troubling. Music students are disproportionately white and upper class, even in diverse, low-income schools. There's also the fact that it's common for kids to go through seven years of middle and high school music education without ever being asked to compose music of their own, which is a glaring issue to me. For my purposes, though, there's one flaw that begs to be discussed first. All right, so Brooklyn, when you were in high school, how many high school music concerts did you attend? I don't think I went to a single music concert. That's my friend Brooklyn. She's a huge music fan, an avid concert goer, and if she was alive in the 1970s, she would be somebody who would be known for her record collection. And when you were in high school, how did you feel about music? Um, despite not playing it, music was probably one of the most important things in my life. Got it. And how many football games did you go to while you were in high school? I went to a couple of football games, but more of other sporting events. And football in particular, was that important to you in high school? Not at all. Maybe I'm anti-football, in fact. I also talked to my friend Annie, who I went to high school with. Annie, when you were in high school, did you go to high school music concerts? I mean, yeah, I went, I went to all of them, technically. Why did you go to all the music concerts? I worked backstage. But if you didn't work backstage, how many concerts do you think you would have gone to? None of them. Why not? 
I did. I wasn't interested at all. It didn't seem interesting. <laughs> how do you? How do you? Do you love listening to music on your own time? Yeah, I'd say so. What about um, how many football games did you go to? Um, I went to a lot the first two years, and then it dwindled down. Did you love football? Yeah. You can see the point I'm trying to make. If there's one thing we know for sure about high school students. It's that music is really important to them. Yet, that love of music doesn't translate into engagement with music at school. And that's because school music programs aren't socially responsive. The phrase socially responsive is the key phrase of this podcast. It's how I'm measuring the effectiveness of music programs, and I thought it'd be worth taking a minute to define what it means to me. If a program is socially responsive, it means they're looking at the world outside of the school to inform how they structure their curriculum. Think about it this way. When students go to a football game on Friday night, it looks really similar to the football they watch on a Sunday morning. But if students go to a school concert on a Thursday night, it's not going to look anything like a concert they'd see downtown on a Saturday night. Because music programs aren't socially responsive, the audiences at high school music concerts contain very few students. And who's in the audience affects who's on the stage. It's important to remember that one of the primary reasons people pursue music is the desire to be in front of an audience, in particular an audience of their peers. And since school music programs don't seem to care about getting the student body to attend concerts, they also have a problem getting certain types of musicians to attend classes. I was one of those musicians. I wanted to make music my friends actually cared about. And there was no class or teacher at the school I went to that would help me with that goal. My case is not unique. Within the music community I'm a part of, I know dozens of musicians who didn't feel like there was a place for them in public school music programs. And I thought it was important that you hear from one other than me. So I talked to my friend, Rose Tati. So I'm Russell Rose Tati Prim. Rose Tati is the, the stage name, business name, etc. Rose Tati is a rapper, producer, photographer, art director. I could go on. Point is, you'd have to print his business card on a 5x7. He's an interesting case because he played saxophone in his middle school band but didn't continue in high school. You were in band in middle school, um, but you didn't continue with band in high school. Why was that? You know, they, they wanted me to join it, and I didn't want to continue with band because I didn't want to take on an extracurricular that it, didn't, it, it just didn't feel tangible with the music career that I was already working on. When I do have friends in band and they're doing this, they're doing that, they're out in the hot Arizona sun and uh, there's their band conductor yelling at them and they're playing this kind of music. And I'm like, I, it doesn't seem like I have too much choice or control over what I get to do or feel or experience. I'm just gonna go like right next door to the band room and produce music in a practice room. Looking back on sort of that you didn't have an opportunity in the past to kind of pursue the music that you wanted to pursue in a school setting, how does that make you feel? It, it Definitely at the time, I didn't feel understood, you know? And getting any sort of mentor or leader in what I wanted to do was near impossible. You know, there's not very many role models, right? And the people that I did come in contact with did not have the kind of influences a high schooler should be around. Like, I knew I shouldn't be in this dude's house that, yes, is paying me for my beats, but he's smoking weed and he's cheating on his wife and all these different things. Like, that's not an environment. And so in the most institutional, structured environment 
there wasn't any kind of outlet that would really suffice. You know, the security guards were giving me CDs and music and trying to open me up to all the kinds of different music. But, you know, it just wasn't it just wasn't it. I love that image of a high school Rose Otati just walking around, swapping CDs with security guards in order to get his music fix. That's interesting. Um, what are some of the CDs these security guards gave you? What, what are the security guards turning you on to? You know, uh, the Wellers, uh, just a lot of uh, reggae, uh, a lot of uh, different different kind of music from the islands. And that, that it, it meant a lot, you know, especially because one of them was from Indiana. And so we, we, I'm from Indiana as well. So it just that it was that level of similarity. You know, the people that were teaching me music there felt like there was this disconnect. I'm sure it was readily apparent that the, uh, the music curriculum that you were being a part of in middle school was incredibly white. Um, just the, the people you were learning about the music that you were learning was incredibly white. And how did, how did that feel? Um, it felt like, well, it, well, let's just be honest. Like it feels the same way, you know, I felt my entire life. It's like, we're learning about another white man and you become desensitized to it after a point. It's not like you stop paying attention to it, but it's like, well, here we go again. You know, you, you get to a point to where you're actually surprised when they actually want to acknowledge the work of, uh, you know, Duke. All of what Rose Otati's talking about, race, genre, not having a say in what he feels or experiences as part of a band ensemble, relates back to this idea of being socially responsive. Now, Rose Otati was lucky enough to have the opportunity to join a piano class at his high school, a class that was taught by a teacher who really cared about his musical goals. And um, in your piano class, did you feel like the skills that you learned in there were applicable to the producing that you were doing? Oh, definitely, definitely, because that's what I had intent for. When I went to piano class, I knew exactly what I was in that class to do. So that was uh, that was one of the teachers that you know really took the time to get to know me and inspire me and push me uh, in in the realm of what I'm trying to do. And, you know, and he was getting me in contact with past students that were on the same path, you know, in California. He was giving me equipment that his father had who passed away. It was an audio interface. So he was he was aware. There's teachers like Rose Tati's piano teacher all over the country. But my point is that they're few and far between. And that the reason they're few and far between is because conventional music education ideologies are outdated. If you took a music class other than band, orchestra, or choir, whether it be guitar, piano, or if you were really lucky, went to a school that had a music production class, odds are your experience wasn't like Rosotati's. Odds are that your class was treated like an ugly stepchild that music teachers wanted nothing to do with. That was my experience. I went into my guitar class in high school hoping that it would be like Rosotati's piano class but it was the opposite. Another thing that really jumped out at me during my conversation with Rose Otati was that both of the music programs at our school really missed out. He and I took music classes to be sure, but we took guitar and piano, and those are the classes kind of off to the side. They're not at the heart of the program. And I think we were both students who would have liked to be at the heart of the program if the program's heart was more reflective of who we were. Rose Otati runs the Music Business Club at ASU, and he does an incredible job putting on concerts and events and mentoring incoming freshman musicians. And I'm the type of guy who makes podcasts about music education in his free time. We're kind of like the ideal music students. And it just seems like such a missed opportunity that neither of the schools we went to noticed that. Before we continue, I think it's a good idea to give you a little bit more of my background. 
Where and what I teach is an important part of this story. I teach at an arts high school. We don't have a conventional music program. I teach guitar, vocal studio classes, and music production. I've only ever observed more traditional music education as an outsider, never as a student and never as a teacher. So while I was doing research for this podcast, I wanted to make sure I spoke to people who were inside the band, orchestra, and choir world. I had conversations with several students, current and former, and also a couple of music teachers. And each one of these conversations was really important and shaped the way I approached this podcast. However, there was one teacher from Albuquerque named Josephine Gonzalez who had a lot to say that I think was really, really important. So um, I'm an Albuquerque native. I went to La Cueva High School. Um, and during my time in uh, the public schools here, I also participated in the Albuquerque Youth Symphony. It was a really um, rich musical experience. Um, I went to Arizona State for my undergrad. So I finished, finished up my performance degree and came back to Albuquerque and I got my licensure in music education and I became the director of bands at Highland High School. While I was teaching, I finished my master's in music education at UNM. I also am the district vice president for our professional organization. So you know, I've run a couple of PDs and you know, I'm, I'm active on the state level as well as the district level. So I do a lot of band stuff. The funny thing is, I found Josephine completely by mistake. I thought she was the band director at a Highland High School near where I live, but she turned out to work at a Highland High School a whole state away. So where I would start is simply just asking you if, it, in your opinion, what are some things you would like to see change in music education? What are some things that you would like to see done differently? A lot. <laughs> the second Josephine said this, I was incredibly grateful for my geographical mix-up. Um, and actually, this is an interesting conversation to have right now because we are having to come to terms with an entirely new way of looking at our, our classrooms because um, for for us here in Albuquerque um, and Albuquerque Public Schools, we are online until at least January. For posterity, Josephine's talking about the online schooling model that had to be introduced in 2020 in order to keep students safe from COVID-19. We have to reconsider what our classrooms and our curriculum looks like. Since we don't have those performances looking down at us through the pipeline, um, the way that we're having to structure our curriculum right now is entirely different. Because in reality, if you look at like the band world particularly, if you look at a, you know, talking, you know, let's say in February of this year, what that rehearsal looks like looks very similar, if not the same as what it did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Um, and if we're looking at the lives of our students 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, it's changed massively. And the, the, the reaction from the curricular world and like the, the music education setting has done a pretty poor job of, of reacting to that. I've interviewed like three more traditional directors. You're the, you're the, sort of the first person who's, who's kind of touched upon some of the topics that I've been confused upon as, as looking from a different perspective. When you think about how you could re-envision maybe some performance aspects in order to accomplish the things that you talked about, what would that look like? That's a, that's a really good question. And I, I appreciate the fact that you're talking about it because it's something that's so easily ignored because in the band world, it's, it's something like, well, we've done it this way and we've always done it this way. So we're going to continue doing it this way, even though it's not responsive to the fact that most of the time when we have concerts, the only people in the audience are the families of the kids who are on stage. Um, and that's, I think that's a problem because 
because we're not, we're, we're doing it for the sake of this is what we've always done. And this is what I did when I was in band. So we're just going to keep on doing it this way. Ah, uh, yes. The classic, we've done it this way forever. So it's got to be the only way it can be done, right? But of course, it's important to note that change doesn't mean you have to disregard everything else that's happened up until this point. There are some benefits of having an aspect of a curriculum that is still seated in that tradition, but I think that that should only be an, a- an aspect of what we do. Um, so there are ways to engage, you know, other programs. For example, you know, we have a baile folklorico class at our school and they, they do all these beautiful dances and uh, a, a culturally responsive and community responsive and, you know, in innovatively responsive way would be like, hey, maybe we can do an, an experience, a, a concert with them where we play the music that they dance to. And they're, they're still getting the performance aspect of it because really we do what we do so we can share our music with people. And, and the idea of thinking outside of the box and thinking, well, we don't have to have all of our concerts in this really historically irrelevant setting. Historically irrelevant sounds harsh, but Josephine's not saying that music's history isn't relevant to music's future. She's simply saying that music's future isn't really accounted for in most music classrooms, and therefore the performances students are doing aren't exactly what they should be. Because, you know, like, for example, if we're talking about where that came from, back when Sousa had all those, you know, wrote all those marches, you would go to the park on Sunday and you would listen to your local community band because there wasn't internet and there wasn't Spotify and there wasn't YouTube. And so that was a community appropriate and engaging activity. We've taken that format and then continue to shove it down the educational setting when everything else is changing. And so that's why people aren't, you know, like you don't go to the park and listen to the band on Saturday you go to Netflix and listen, or you go to YouTube and listen. There's a lot to be said about trying to find creative ways to engage at the very least your school community and what they would be excited about. Like maybe you could put on a concert about, you know, with the music that kids at your school actually want to listen to. So they're going to come and listen to it because it's music that they recognize. And it is a little bit scary that some programs are so, I don't want to say pretentious because I don't think it comes from a, a, an area of pretension, but they're so concerned about teaching the the classics. Part of me still loves that because that's what I grew up with. But if I'm being educationally honest with myself, it's probably more important for me to be responsive to our times and our students' lives and find those creative ways of breaking out of that, that box that we are so deep-seatedly in love with. <laughs> The point Josephine is making about music programs being unable or unwilling to adapt to the times relates to a concept I preach all the time as an educator. Contextualize what students already know and then build from there. Kids come into middle school knowing a lot about music. They know how it makes them feel. They know what they like and what they don't like. They can articulately compare the different flows of half a dozen SoundCloud rappers. And most schools dismiss this musical knowledge wholesale because it doesn't fit into the band, orchestra, choir framework. What if instead of dismissing that knowledge, we used it? In fact, what if we built our music classrooms around it? Imagine if a kid looks in a music room and instead of seeing kids playing music the same way they were playing music in 1930, they see kids playing music the way the artists they listen to play music. 
I think it would solve a lot of those issues we keep bringing up regarding the demographics of music classrooms and students continuing their musical journeys after high school. Changing the classroom like that doesn't mean we'd have to abandon classical music and symphonic performances. It just means those elements will be less of a focus and we'd include them in the curriculum for a different purpose. And while that might sound like a bummer to a lot of music teachers who like things the way they are, it's also important to remember what Josephine said about being educationally honest. I think if you are educationally honest, you have to recognize this is a more socially responsive way forward. But I would offer this as a sort of consolation prize. Doing things this way would likely result in a much larger population engaging with classical music. Because once you teach a kid that the music that they love with their whole heart has a place within a classroom, it makes it a lot easier to get them to love a wider variety of music. Hopefully we can agree there's a better way to teach music than the way the majority of schools currently teach it. So then the next obvious question is, how do we change? Or what obstacles are there that are preventing change? And that's where things get a little frustrating. The lack of music education progress in the last several decades would seem to be the doing of some Department of Education bureaucratic boogeyman. Some issue with funding or standards or some weird loophole that prevents music programs from doing anything differently. But it's not. Arts education funding isn't directly tied to what's in the curriculum of a class. And the standards are really flexible. You could teach them with pretty much any ensemble and using any genre. It just comes down to music teachers not wanting to change. They're more beholden to tradition than they are to their own students. Josephine decided to take her program in some pretty non-traditional directions, including deciding that her ensembles would no longer compete at different festivals. When I asked her if there was any obstacles in making this change, her answer made it clear how simple it was. So my particular situation, I am extremely fortunate where I have an unbelievably supportive administration. And so it's one of those that if I say, hey, I think this is going to be good for the program, they're going to be like, okay, cool. Hey, I think this is going to be good for the program. Okay, cool. I understand that not every administration is that welcoming to new ideas. But I think in many circumstances, all that's needed in order to create a change in music education is a thorough explanation and a conversation between music teachers, admin, students, and their families. I chose my words carefully before I let Josephine explain what she did in order to make a change within her program. I use the word simple and not the word easy because I understand that there's a difference between the two. Change is simple because a bunch of music teachers could wake up tomorrow morning and just decide that they're going to run their program differently. So what's the reason they don't do that? I asked Josephine because, well, she knows more band teachers. When you talk about separating yourself from what you kind of desire as a musician versus what is actually more responsive for your students. Um, and this is a, a really tough question, but why do you think there's so many teachers who are unable to do that? I think part of it is professional pressure. You know, in our district, we have 13 public high schools and about five private high schools, and there's another 10 high schools within easy driving distance. So we have a really big community right here. And you know, I've, I've, I've heard the stories from 20 years ago about when so-and-so at this school took Pirates of the Caribbean to our performance assessment. And it was scandalous because how dare you take that, you know, a little bit of this professional pressure of this is the way we do it. And the reason we do it this way is because that's the way it's supposed to be done. But also 
another thing is that as, and I'm seeing it really exacerbated right now with the online format, so many teachers have a struggle with creating or envisioning something different than what they experienced. Because a lot of people teach music, band, orchestra, choir, because when they were in band, orchestra, choir, they had a really positive experience. And so they kept with that community because they loved that community. And so perhaps there's that scare of like, I'm here because I love this community. Why would I change it? Because I'm here because I loved it. What if I make something that people don't love? What if I make something that people don't love is a very understandable and very human motivation to resist change. But what I would offer as a retort is music teachers are already making something the majority of students don't love. It's why people like Rose Otati and I didn't join band, orchestra, or choir. And it's why there's no teenagers in the audience at these school concerts. In some ways, the thing these teachers are afraid of is already happening. If music teachers want to create classes that students really love, there's three primary things that they should do in order to be socially responsive. First off, they should make a concentrated effort to turn some concerts into social events. Now, I'm not saying all concerts have to be a block party, but at least twice, three times a year, the goal of a music concert should be to attract the music students' peers. And you don't have to get rid of saxophones and tubas and violins in order to make concerts socially engaging. Really think about what the students at your school would want to listen to and want to show up for. And if you don't know, then ask your students. They know what their friends are listening to, and they're also going to be your best marketing. If they're really excited about what they're playing, they're going to convince their friends to come see. Or maybe even take small groups of concert band students and have them perform songs at prom or homecoming while the students dance. Anything, really, to put musicians in a more appropriate social context for our modern times. The second thing music teachers need to do is treat contemporary instruments with respect and actually value them and their contribution to music education. I mean, the guitar and the piano are far and away the most popular musical instruments of the 20th and 21st centuries, but if you go to a small to medium-sized high school, they might not even offer classes in these instruments. And if they do, they're clearly an afterthought. Imagine if other subjects at school ignored the most important tools from the last 120 years. Imagine a photography class that only used black and white film from the late 1890s. Imagine an English class where instead of letting you print out your paper from a computer, they wheeled in a giant printing press and you had to assemble your paper block by block. The third thing I think all music teachers should do in order to be more socially responsive is let students write their own music. Interpretive music is great. Interpretive music can teach students a ton. It can even teach students a lot about how to write their own music. But if we're never giving students assignments that require them to compose their own music, I feel like we're blocking students off to at least half, maybe even more than half, of the musical experience. Not to beat a dead horse, and I know there are some crucial differences, but imagine a history class where you only ever copied other history papers and never wrote your own. Or a yearbook course where the only project was to make an exact replica of last year's yearbook. And these three things, they can be done pretty quickly. There's not some bureaucratic red tape nightmare awaiting teachers who are trying to do things differently. All it takes is a different perspective and the desire to be more responsive to the lives of your students. Before we finish, I do want to bring the story back around to Marcus and to Mr. Abrams because 
They're sort of the inspiration behind all of this. The reason I did this podcast is because there was this itch inside of me that said, I know that Mr. Abrams is a perfect music teacher on paper. He's the person that admin looks for when they're hiring teachers. He's the person who gets promoted to be a fine arts coordinator for an entire school district. But I know that that's not right. Mr. Abrams isn't the perfect music teacher. And I'm not going to say he's a bad person, but what he is is he's a person who was brought up in a system that taught him that legitimate music making can only occur in one type of classroom. He's a person who looked at the guitar, the most popular instrument of the last 120 years, used by millions and millions of musicians to express themselves, and he sneered at it. He said, you know what, I'll be in my office. And while Mr. Abrams was in his office, a student got drunk and a student got arrested. And I'm not saying that Mr. Abrams is to blame for the actions of a 20-year-old super senior who's drunk in school and tries to stab a cop with a ballpoint pen. But what I am saying is this music stuff's important. And simply ignoring an instrument that so many people care deeply about is ignoring an opportunity to connect really deeply with students. The guitar is just as important to me as the tuba is to Mr. Abrams. But what's more important to me is being educationally honest. So I aspire to do what Josephine Gonzalez has done, where even though she loves the oboe and she loves classical music so much, she loves being responsive to her students more. And call me optimistic, but I think that's something we can all do. Thank you for listening. Once again, I am Jacob Unterreiner. If you have any thoughts about this podcast or this topic, I'd love to hear from you on Instagram. My handle is at Jacob Q. Unter, J-A-C-O-B-Q-U-N-T-E-R-R. Special thanks to Rose Otati, Josephine Gonzalez, and Alejandro Estrella for their contributions. If you stuck around after the credits, you get this little bonus conversation I had with my friend Joe, the one who got to be the human wall between Marcus and Mr. Abrams' office. I asked him how he remembered the events of that day. So, uh, the reason I'm interviewing you today is to ask you, what do you remember about getting drunk in guitar class? Oh, wow, okay. That's a throwback. That is a throwback. Um, <clears throat> Here, Joe went on a little bit of a rant that included some curse words and also the uses of the real names of both of the people involved in this story. So I had to cut it out, but I'll tee him up here where he starts talking about Mr. Abrams. Anyways, um, I just remember that he just never supervised. He would literally show us one thing, go into his office, and would never show us anything after that. We literally learned how to play classical guitar by ourselves. And um, I remember that this kid was in he sat behind me and you right he sat behind both of us and him and this other kid were just like <clears throat> throwing a butterfly knife back and forth between each other like blade fully exposed could have easily cut them but it didn't and i just remember him telling us like he was drinking beers behind me and then he was like eating oats also to like kind of take away from the i did forget about the, the smell oats. yeah he was just like had a bag of oats like oop. i don't know weird but yeah, he was, he was literally shotgunning beers behind us and eating oats and telling us that, like, his parents were dead and showing us, remember, he showed us, like, scars like he had been shot and he invited us over to hang out. And then I also remember that he just kept talking about stealing this that gong that was in the class. Yeah, there was, for reference, there was a gong in this class that this um, this music teacher was, like, obsessed with. He didn't want anyone to touch it. He, like, said it would be, like, immediate... What, he said people would get expelled if they touched it? I couldn't remember what he said. Something like that. Yeah, something like that. Like, ridiculous. So, anyways, this kid was planning on stealing it. 
Then after that, he had to go play play a piece for Mr. And um, in his office, solo piece. And this kid said, if he says anything mean to me, I'm going to punch him right in his face. And he was drunk, so we honestly considered that was a possibility, but it didn't happen. See, I don't remember it as a solo piece. I remember, I thought he broke a string and had to go get a string replaced. I thought we had to do the solo pieces, because we always that had to day, do that We did have to do the solo pieces, but I don't know if it was that day. It might have been. I don't recall what, I remember him saying, if he's mean to me, I'm going to punch him in the face. Yeah, okay, and I remember him going to the office, but yeah, I don't remember... I thought it was a broken string. Maybe it was. And then I remember later that he actually got arrested because he tried to stab the resource officer with a pencil. Yes. Um, I, I do recall that as yeah. well. So you're you're a teacher now. Oh, yeah. Forgot to mention. Joe is a high school teacher. He teaches math and science. So I thought I'd get his professional opinion on the matter. Yes. Looking back on that, what do you like what do you think? What is your what is your kind of reaction to that as a teacher now? Well, first of all, the fact that you don't interact with your students enough to know that they're going through these kind of issues, to know that somebody's drinking beers in your class, obviously is like a red flag that you're a shit teacher. That's on the record. You're putting that in there. Um, <laughs> so that's like the biggest red flag. Of all. So you're enabling them by not, you by neglecting them essentially in your own class. Um, that's what I think about that. I think it's ridiculous that that even occurred. And that's as good of a note to end on as any.